All right, you can be seated. We'll dismiss the uh, kiddos to head, school-age kids to head to the back. Who are they meeting back there? Let's see. No? Yes? Okay, McKenzie's, Laurie. And the rest of us, I'll invite you to open uh, your Bibles if you brought them or the app that you might use to Acts chapter 2. Um, And as a pastor, we get to look at a text today that uh, both thrills and haunts me, Um, thrills as a picture of what the church could be, haunts maybe sometimes that uh, it looks quite a bit different from what the church is. Uh, We started the book of Acts a couple weeks ago, Um, last week, Weston handled Pentecost and this great uh, sermon that Peter delivered, and we won't have time to sum up all of that. We're going to kind of jump in, but I do encourage you to check out uh, his message um, last week. It was really uh, he did a phenomenal job. I know that encouraged your heart. And we're going to jump in in verse 40, and we're just going to kind of walk through this text. Now, as we walk through the book of Acts, we're not handling every verse, um, but we're going to kind of do... Um, basically a chapter a week. I know in chapter two, we're taking two weeks on it. such a significant moment in the life of the church. But um, for the rest of it, um, we're going to kind of hit the main thing of the chapter. That way we're not in the book of Acts for several years, um, which, which we've done before. So, um, and I encourage you to read along with it. And as we skip over some significant parts um, that we're not preaching on, that we will try to address those on our blogs or uh, certain ways like um, that. So, um, and just uh, before I get cranked up, um, just a quick commercial for our equipping classes that are going on. Um, Weston is uh, teaching a pastor's class. That's a co-ed class. Um, Anybody's invited to be a part of that. And uh, between Weston, I know Jason's taught in there. I'll teach in there some. We've got some other people that will teach in there from time to time. And they're fixing to start a new study on gospel fluency. I think that starts next week. Is that right? So they'll start gospel fluency next week. Uh, my mom is leading a ladies-only class, um, and they're walking through um, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, then they'll move on to other things as well as they wrap that up. So that's just a quick commercial for those things. Um, I know uh, we've also have some of those on the podcast as well if you want to catch up with, with that. My heart was really stirred this week as I read this passage again and again, and I think there's some things here that our church, church does really well. And I think there's some things here that we're really lacking in. And I think God has a word for all of us. Let me read that opening verse in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray as we read these words, inspired words of you that you've inspired, that you've breathed out, we hold in our hand today encased in um, maybe a leather cover or that we would not read them as just history but as inspired words of God, that they're living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. You've promised that they will not go forth in vain. So would you use them in our hearts and minds today, that they would come alive to us, that they would convict of sin, they would heal um, our wounds, that they would deconstruct bad theology that we may have learned or seen in the past and reconstruct the right theology, that we would be encouraged and equipped for all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we see the birth of the church. Again, I apologize for jumping right in, but Peter had just preached this basically 10-minute sermon that had kind of uh, encompassed, right, this gospel message. Again, Wesson touched on that last week. And we see the results of that. He closed it with exhorting them, saying, or appealing with them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And that was his closing. Not much seeker-sensitiveness in it, just, hey, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And we see that it worked. They're added to the church, 3,000 souls went from 120 that had gathered probably on the Mount of Ascension that had gathered with those early disciples to pray for the Holy Spirit were part of this Pentecost movement where the Holy Spirit comes down. 
Peter stands up and preaches, and the result is the church just blew up in a good way. We see the birth of the church, this clear call from Peter to step out of one culture, he calls it the crooked generation, and to step into this new culture, this paradigm shift, this, this new humanity that's going to be called the church or people of the way. And it would cost them something greatly to do that, to step from one and to the other. And I love this. You see a little bit about this church. One, you see that it's big and small. It's thousands on day one of the church, basically. And then you see them gathering in big numbers in the temple and small numbers in their homes. You see the birth of the church. You see also that the church belongs to Jesus. It's not you. It's not me. It's not us. I've kind of despised this term uh, senior or lead pastor for a long time because Jesus is really the lead pastor. Jesus is really the senior pastor. I kind of chuckle when I meet people at conferences like I was at this weekend and they said, hey, my name's so-and-so. I'm the lead pastor of this church. And I say under my breath, no, you're not. Really, Jesus is the lead pastor. And I know they don't mean that, but for me, Jesus has got to always be the head of the church. And whenever our thinking kind of diverge from the thinking of Jesus about what the church is and what it should be and him as the chair and leader and pastor of the church, then we go the wrong way when our thoughts divert from his thoughts about what we should be. So we want to hear from him and we want to follow him and we want to obey him and we want to love and serve the church because Jesus loved and served the church. In addition, as we're going to read, we're going to see evidences of the Holy Spirit and the marks of the church, not just religious traditions of things that we do for God, but the Holy Spirit putting the life of Jesus in us and calling us and compelling us with great enthusiasm and joy to have evidences of this new life in Jesus. You see sometimes as you drive around town, um, yard signs of people who are really proud of their church. And I'm not, I'm not hating on them. Or you might see bumper stickers of, uh, you know, follow me to, to this and that church, right? That they're, they're proud of their church. But this, this early church had none of that. You know what they had? They had evidences that they had been radically changed. And it was enough for the whole watching world to see. All of the world in that area would begin to see. And then Christianity would, as we read through the book of Acts, would begin to spread all the way to Asia by the time we get to Acts 17, No signs, no bumper stickers, but just this radically new humanity that had been changed all because they believed so clearly in the message of the gospel and they were so radically changed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this description of the early church is so compelling, it's so moving, so much so, as I said, that historians that even worked for Caesar himself were so puzzled by them. They were impacting the world 3,000 coming to Christ at one time. And then that number being added daily and daily and daily. How does this happen? A few things that we mentioned in the very first week, and again were mentioned last week, and I've already said it once today, but I want to really reiterate it, and maybe you would jot it down, because this is the underlying theme in the book of Acts, of the church. They were convinced of the gospel message. They were convinced this was not a preference thing for them. This was not an add-on. They didn't just add Jesus to their life. They didn't add the gospel as something in their repertoire. They They were convinced of this gospel message. Jesus, the very Son of God, had come and died and rose again that we might know true life. This was not just good doctrine to them. And then two, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry on the message and ministry of Jesus. It says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread to prayer. I love that word devoted. It means to to give yourself to something. Maybe your translation even reads that, that they gave themselves to this. They gave themselves, they abandoned themselves to these things unselfishly. And this is what the gospel does in us. So if you want a little test, a little heart test of yourself, if you've really embraced the gospel and the Holy Spirit is living in you, which scripture says you cannot really be a Christian without the Holy Spirit living in you. If you have not the spirit, Paul says, then you're not part of God's family. 
So, so, so if you want to know if this is really working, if you're engaged in the gospel, then these four things that these early Christians or disciples gave themselves to should be more and more true in your life. Maybe not perfectly, but certainly in that trajectory. They gave themselves to these things. They abandoned themselves to these things. In response to the gospel, this natural reaction to the gospel of Jesus led to their lives looking like this. And at its core, there's this understanding, there's this idea of radical unselfishness. It's so evident, it's so compelling to the outside world. You read it just a minute ago, I mean, as Amber read it a minute ago, that they were doing life together and they were selling everything they had and they were ministering to each other and they, they would, we would see this report of the church meeting together and coming with words of affirmation for each other. They were ready to be used by God and they were expectant that God would move in and through them. There was this radical unselfishness in these disciples that it's something I can't say is true in most churches and probably not true even in our church to a great degree. Not even true in my life, this radical unselfishness. Let's look at the four things that these early disciples gave themselves to. First, the apostles' teaching. Now, this is before there was a canonized New Testament. So they had the Old Testament. Basically, the Torah would have been very uh, available to them in the temples. Most, any good Jew, had memorized uh, the Torah, or at least large portions of it, in the Psalms. But the disciples who walked with Jesus would just gather in these temple courts and they would talk about what Jesus had said and done and they would even provide application to this kind of life. You see an example of this in Peter's sermon earlier in this chapter. He kind of sums up this is what Jesus did and this is why he came and this is what he's done and this is what we should believe and that we should make our life about. You can go on down and read First uh, and Second Peter to see the other kinds of things that they were teaching in the temple and they were ministering to people and the letters to the churches. Christianity has always been a word-based religion. God revealed himself to us in books and in words. We know God through Jesus and Jesus through the revealed word of God. Don't kid yourself this morning that we desperately need the word of God in our hearts. Listen, you and I need a regular diet of God's word We need a regular diet of consistent prayer in our lives every day. That's not legalism. That's just the very beginning of discipleship. That's not me me browbeating you. Listen, this is what it means to be a believer so that we would focus on the words of God and the revealed nature of who God is. That's just good theology, that we would know who God is. That we would wrap our lives around that idea. Our hearts are not naturally godly. I can speak of myself, and I think I can even speak of you. Our hearts are not godly. Our sin makes us think wrongly. It distorts things. We naturally drift. We naturally are drawn to think selfishly. Most every message around us draws us inward. That's why Colossians 3 verse 2, Paul says, Set your mind on things above. Get them off you and your surroundings, and set them on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Church, we've got to get our eyes up. Your problem and my problem is that we evaluate every aspect of our lives in terms of how to take it from, how to take from it for ourselves. Don't we think like this? How's this going to impact me? We even think about church gatherings this way. We think about community group this way. We think about relationships this way. We, you, are the center of your own little selfish universe. And that's why when your family is honoring you, Above all else, then life is good. But when they start acting selfishly, everything falls apart. Maybe you identify with this. I just went on a family trip with my my entire family in a minivan for several hours. And this is very aware as my temperature is getting hotter and hotter. And uh, and I'm, you know, loosening the collar, trying to drive and deal with traffic. And then the kids are screaming in the back because they want to pop tart and they want to turn the movie louder and all the things and I just want to hit them in the head and say be thankful you have anything back there right my parents gave me a stick to play with (laughs) me and Leighton and Lydia we played next car's mine that was our game 
We would find a car that looked better than ours, and we would claim it for our own imaginary fleet of cars. Next car's mine. They've got iPads and Kindles and DVD players, and it's not loud enough, and they want Pop-Tarts. And then I find myself just ready to snap because I often view myself at the center of my own little selfish universe. And as long as everything is good in my universe and everyone's honoring me the way that I think I should be honored, everything's okay. But when the other four sinners that live in my house start sinning, I join in with them. Our problem is that we evaluate every aspect of our lives in the terms of how we take from it for ourselves. This is the problem in marriage. It's the problem in every other human relationship. When we begin to live for ourselves, things begin to fall apart. It's what's wrong with the world. And this is what is so radical about Christianity, especially as they as it's opposed to the values of the world, Christ moves to the center. And that's what enabled this kind of living. Listen, everything in life pulls your gaze downward. Everything, when you wake up, I read a study this week that said, I forgot the percentage, 70% of adults from age 18 to 45 check their smartphone within 10 minutes of waking up. That's part of our liturgy. That's part of something that forms us. We begin to think a certain way, whether it's emails or stocks or whatever we're checking. We're checking likes on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. That becomes part of our normal liturgy, and that's something that ends up forming us into a certain kind of person. And everything's pulling at us this way. And our kids, my goodness, they're growing up in this technological world, and it's pulling at them. Moms and dads, we need to get our eyes up. How dare we think that we are so prideful and arrogant that we do not need a regular diet of God's word in us, that we don't fight to memorize God's word, that God's word is not seasoned as salt on our lips, that we don't talk it around our tables or when we're taking our kids to school. Church, we desperately need this. And if the enemy has convinced you that you are too busy or that social media is too important, for you to take your gaze off of Christ and all that he's done for us, then we've, we're losing the battle for our kids. We're losing the battle for victory even in our own lives. We see these early disciples without a whole lot of instruction or out, really without even a formal pastor with any training. They just begin to instinctively do these things because they believe so strongly in the message of Jesus and they were empowered by the Spirit. And so they devoted themselves. They, they gave themselves to this. You know what you've given yourself to? It's just what you talk about the most. That's what you've given yourself to. It's what you're so passionate about. It's the thing that drives you, that you light up when you talk about it. For some people, it may be their families. For some, it might be their career. For some, it's some kind of hobby. They just just love these things so much, they light up about it. These disciples, you know what it was for them? It was about Jesus. They just couldn't help but talking about it. They gathered these early disciples many times in prison, Paul and Peter and John. Today, you can't talk about these things. Hey, hey, listen, go ahead and put us in prison. We can't not talk about this. This is such a big deal to us that you're going to have to kill us to shut us up. This is that big of a deal. And I know when we read this, when I've read this as a church for a long time, I've thought, oh, well, that's, that's so super apostles. These people were with Jesus. But you know the message of Scripture to us is this every believer You've got the Holy Spirit in you, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, speaking of power, is in us and driving us to live this kind of life. That's no excuse to say, oh no, that's for them. And somehow, we've, we've come up with this idea of church in the West, that being part of the church, being part of the way, being part of the movement of Jesus is just to show up on a Sunday and punch a ticket and give a little money. That is so far from the picture of the church. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They knew they needed to hear these things. They knew they needed to get their eyes up. They knew they needed to conform their life around the truth. Everything was dragging them down just like it's dragging us down. And we've got to get our eyes up, church. They devoted themselves to each other. Look what it says there. It says earlier in verse 5 that there were people from every nation in heaven. These people were diverse. You ever been around people from other countries or cultures? Some of the things they do is really cool and cute. Some of it is just outright offensive. And these are these different people without even most of them a language in common. If you remember in the early part of 2 that as these disciples are speaking, as Peter's preaching, they're hearing this gospel in their own language. I'm not sure that effect lasted past that sermon. So they're doing life, and they can't even really communicate, and that's frustrating for both people. And they've got these other cultural things that they brought with them into this. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a lot of people from foreign countries there, and they just lived different lives. They tried to save every penny, so they didn't want to use air conditioning, so they had all the windows up all the time in Fort Worth heat. And they would cook this weird cabbage-smelling thing. It smelled like rotten eggs all the time. It was just hideous. And I thought it was the worst thing in the world that I had to be next to them going to school, right? Much less, these people are literally living their lives together. They're liquidating everything they have so that others can have. They were so incredibly devoted to each other. Don't you think there were conflict that they had to work out? Don't you think there were some barriers they had to overcome to bring ministry to one another? What do we do in the church today when someone offends us? Do we quickly try to jump over the barriers of offense so that we can, you know, patch that relationship in the name and the, and the cause of Christ? Is that what we do? No, most of us, we don't do that. We just get really frustrated. We start talking to someone else in our community group or neighbor about that. Man, have you, did you see what they wrote on Facebook? How, how dare they do that? I don't know where Hudson's picked this up. This is his way of offense. Hudson's my four-year-old. If you do something that he doesn't like, he says, you get a how dare you. Literally, it's what he says. And he says it in this little English accent. I don't know where it comes from. It's awesome. I think that all the time. If you offend me in my head, I'm saying, you get a how dare you. These people are overcoming all these obstacles so that they can really do life. And this is not just kindness to one another. This is not refusing to gossip. They are liquidating everything they had to give to people as they have need. Is that not radical? It shouldn't be. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. We see a need, we meet a need. That should be the regular patterns of our lives. And they're together in unity. Jason was talking about as we're praying through this season of Lent together that we would be a people of unity. This was a foretaste of heaven. They're breaking meals, they're sharing meals together. Not just communion, but it certainly was that. They're literally... Bread brothers is what this, this word fellowship means. They're, they're literally doing life and sharing meals together. And they're sharing the, the deep things of their heart with one another. They were so devoted to each other. And they were devoted to making this work. They were devoted to God's presence is the third thing. Verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And all came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all proceeds as people had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous heart, praising God in heaven, having favor with all the people, and the Lord were adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were radically devoted to God's presence. They were devoted to breaking of bread. I told that earlier as in each other, but that also was this formal part of breaking of bread, if, whether that was intentional meals most historians told us that when the church gathered that they shared a real meal together and at the end of that meal they would take a special moment 
to commune together, to have this communion experience together. The Lord's table was a special time in which Jesus promised to be present with us in a very special way. Now, God's always present. He's omnipresent, right? Of course, but he's present in a special way during a time of communion. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 that we are participating in the presence of Christ himself when we celebrate communion. These early believers were devoting themselves to that. So much so that a great part of the letter to the church at Corinth was Paul getting on to them for not honoring this in the way that they should, for not saving part of communion, for not waiting on the working class to actually get off work to come in and celebrate it with them. But they also believed that the Spirit of God was on each one of them. They were, again, devoted to God's presence. They believed the Holy Spirit was on each one of them. Paul would later explain that each one of these early church members would come to gatherings ready to be used by the Spirit of God with words of insight for others to encourage one another. They came to gatherings expecting to be in God's presence and expecting to be used by God. They woke up every day expecting God to use them in a supernatural way in the midst as lights, right? A city on a hill as, as a light in a dark room. This is what they expected. They woke up every morning with this prayer, God, use me today. Would you do something incredible through me today? In verse 43, it says, and all, A-W-E, all came upon every soul. When God shows up, there's this hushed sense of awe, literally defined, a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. The same word used in Mark 4.41 when Jesus spoke to the raging ocean and calmed the wind and when he said, peace be still, in verse 41, It says, and they were filled with great fear. That's the same word, awe. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When they got together, they wasn't haphazardly. They weren't like, oh, nice seeing you here. Let's punch the weekend gathering. Let's show up for a community group. Let's just serve together. No, they came with this sense of expectation and awe that God was with them and was going to do something incredible through them. Does that define our church? This sense of awe filled with wonder and expectation? Now, we all express this a little differently. I'll give you that. I was at a conference this past weekend called Linger, and the the whole point around it is is worship. You know, you worship, there's worship, and more worship and worship, and then some preaching. I go mostly for the preaching, but I enjoy the worship. Yesterday, we were middle of one of these worship sessions that went like 12 songs. And I just thought, this is too much worship for me. I'm, uh, I was definitely raised a Baptist, like, you know, three, maybe five songs. And then I've got to tap out. That's like, that's a lot. They worship. And I was sitting in between these two. Um, I had a Presbyterian friend that I had met earlier. He was a pastor and he was sitting on this side. Uh, you couldn't even get these guys to clap. Like, now this is, this is like the best world-class musicianship worship ever to be led, okay? It's like Brooklyn Tabernacle sent their singers in. Shane and Shane are leading with them. They've got all the people you probably listen to their CDs, like, on the stage. And it is incredible worship. This brother next to me, just arms folded, like, I dare you to make me tap my foot like this. I'm not doing this. And then I had some people from another tribe up there. They were that really vocal, like... Uh, like they were at a football game kind of worshipers. You know what I'm saying? Like you, they hear the strum and they know the song. You're like, oh, give it to me. Yes. These, these people, and I'm just stuck in the middle, like kind of halfway in. On this side, I'm like, woo. On this side, like, yeah, it's too much worship, too much worship. I know it's true. That God moved in a supernatural way, in such a supernatural way. This early church, when they gathered together, there was this sense of awe and wonder. Partly because the very God of the universe, who's sovereign over everything, he opened his mouth and spoke out the sun and the stars, everything. That God desires to be with us, to be a friend to us. Not just a king, but a friend. Who does that? And he overcame every obstacle in bringing salvation to us. 
even death on a cross. And even more than that, that he's extended to us the greatest privilege of being part of his family and extending this very good news of Jesus, this kingdom of God through us. There's nothing greater than that. And they are so overwhelmed with with generosity, with thankfulness and gratitude that they're gathered together thinking the same thing the disciples thought after Jesus spoke to the wind. What is going on here? Who is this man? Does that define our church? Does it define your community group or when you meet in a huddle or when you gather with other believers? Is there a sense of awe? Does it define your time with God in the morning when you open the word and you say, God, speak to me today? Is there a sense of awe? Do you feel his presence with you? Is it in your car on the way to gathering or group? Is it... Is it driving what we're doing here? Do we show up prayed up with words for others? And finally, prayer. They devoted themselves to pray. I feel like in church circles, like that's the thing that we add on to everything, right? Well, prayer is just kind of the assumed part. So anything that we call you to, we're going to ask you to, Christmas conspiracy, we're going to ask you to give money and sacrifice. Hey, and maybe, maybe we should pray as well. It's like the thing that's kind of added on there. Would you consider praying? But for this early church, this, this end prayer was, was, not, uh, was not just an add-on. This was, this was foremost in their lives. They seemed to feel intimately their dependence upon God. So we got the whole world to save. And Jesus told them, hey, before you go around starting this gospel message thing, you got to have the spirit. I want you to go pray. And they go lock themselves in a room and they pray for 10 days on their face. They're praying that God would send the Holy Spirit and he would empower them to accomplish his ministry and his message that he had given them. They, they just prayed. And how I know it's not an add-on, as you read through the book of Acts, I don't know if you're going to read through it with us. Uh, I've encouraged my community group to read a book of Acts a day as it corresponds with the day of the month. I encourage you to do it with a couple different color highlighters, and you can highlight every time that this church is praying together. That's what they're doing. You'd see it every time someone gets in trouble, the church gathers to pray, and every time they have a need, they they gather together to pray, and every time they're scared, they gather together to pray, and every time they don't know what to do next, they gather together to pray, and every time they get bad news, you know what we should do? We should pray. Jim Cimbala was one of the speakers at this conference, and Ashley and I went together. We heard him talk about prayer in just this phenomenal way. We go to a restaurant afterwards, just her and I debriefing, and we talk about why, why is that not our natural response? You know what happens when difficulty comes to my life? I strategize. I panic, and then I strategize. I get in a really foul mood. And then I strategize, like how am I going to get out of this? And maybe I turn money from here, and maybe I can ask this person for money or this person for a favor, or maybe I just stay up awake all night just worried myself sick on how we're going to do this. I'm just strategizing, strategizing, strategizing. And Jesus said, I don't really care about your strategy. I just need you to pray. I just want you to pray. And we pray like God is like, uh, you know, someone that works at this fast food restaurant. And if it takes longer than like 12 minutes, this is trash. Like we're not doing this. And God didn't say that. No, he asked us to pray and to persevere in prayer and just to keep praying. He gave illustrations about praying to keep knocking until the door's opened. You can go 
to your neighbor's house. And if you knock long enough, they're going to open that door. And that's how I want you to pray, Jesus, is I want you to keep praying. And I want you to make prayer first and foremost in your life. And I want you to pray. And when you've done all the praying you can, I want you to pray some more. And I want you to pray. I want this to be part of your life. This is what Jesus said of the temple when he went in and threw over the tables. What did he say? That my house will be called a house of prayer, not of preaching and strategy and fellowship or not even evangelism, that, that the house of God should be a house of prayer. And you say, well, Luke, that's Old Testament before Jesus died. Well, now the temple is in you, that you should be a person of prayer. Does prayer characterize your life when you're with your spouse? Does it characterize your life together? When you're with your kids, is there this, is there this great privilege that we get to go before the throne of God boldly and we get to lay our requests before him and we get to persevere in prayer? This early church, Jesus had left them in a state of total dependence. Peter prays for 10 days and he preaches for 10 minutes and 3,000 people get saved. I think we... We pray for 10 minutes and we preach for 10 days and nothing happens. Listen, this this prayer was not a discipline we need. This is a this is a reverence in our heart. This is a this is dependence that we have to understand. And this is what has hurt us so much in the West. That we've got this illusion that our savings accounts and 401ks and our good jobs and a ER down the road that that we don't even have to really pray. We just got everything together and it's all just an illusion to us because we really have nothing together. It's the scariest place to be. And I think this is the greatest burden on my heart for our church. And I'm not speaking to all of you, but as a consensus, most of us have lost all desire to seek the face of God. We're just good. We don't need him to move. We don't care if he moves. As a matter of fact, if he moved, it would be a disruption in our schedule. So God, if you could move... Would you just move between the hours of like 6.30 and 6.45? Because then all the rest of my life happens. And if you moved in a great way, then we couldn't, we, we would just mess everything up. We'd have to cancel meetings. We wouldn't get our kids to school. We just couldn't do any of that. If you certainly don't move on a Sunday, Lord. If you moved on a Sunday and we're, we're, we're last to Golden Corral or whatever it is, then we've just, we've just lost, can we be honest? That we've lost the desire to persevere in prayer, most of us. We just don't care. We're not infatuated with Jesus. We don't care if he moves. We don't have a burden for the lost people around us. They're the ones going to hell, not us. We're good. And we've missed it, church. And here we are playing our little games of showing up on Sunday morning and singing a song and the band's trying to get us to to just... Joe up there is having a conniption fit, you know. He tried to get us to stretch last week, just... Thought maybe we were stoved up or something. We just, we just don't care. Our hearts are cold and callous to the things of God. No, we want good doctrine. Yeah, we do. But we want doctrine apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you get that, you lose. Because good doctrine never got anyone to heaven. wish we had time to go into this, that they continued with a glad and generous heart. They were so confident that God was going to do what he was going to do. They were such people of prayer that Paul sings in prison, Peter sleeps in prison. There's these signs of joy and contentment because they had found something in God that was better than comfort or money or even personal freedom. These early Christians found more joy in sharing with each other than they did possessing stuff for themselves or growing bank accounts. There more joy in trading all the things the world could offer into the one thing that the world cannot offer, and that is a relationship with Jesus that extends to our brothers and sisters around us. And that's why it said they did it all with a glad and generous heart. Do you have a glad and generous heart? 
Many of us can't be generous because we worship the very thing that we're supposed to be giving away. And the church grew. Many times the church had no other option left but to pray. You see that in Acts chapter 4. Jim Cimbala this weekend said this. It stuck in my heart. He said, if you have nothing left but prayer, then you have everything. Nothing left but prayer, then you got everything. Nothing left. Maybe it's been a long time since you've had nothing left. And God is committed to conform you into the image of Jesus. And you know how he does that? He starts taking every crutch you have away. One by one, he just starts removing them things so that you feel alone and bare with nothing. You ever been to the very end? Like, okay, I can't go any further. I'm at the bottom. I've reached rock bottom. I've got nothing left. And that's the best place for you to be in because you've got nothing but God. That God just kind of stripped away every little illusion that you were in control of anything and said, all you got is nothing and that's all that you need. Could we celebrate that truth today, right? That when we, get, when we have nothing, then we've got everything because we've still got prayer. And we know, we're convinced that we can go to God and we can pray. I've told you a few times that Ashley and I struggled with infertility for several years. We prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And everybody was praying all our teenagers, we were youth pastors at the time. We were praying. This was a big deal, big burden on our heart. If you've ever struggled with that, maybe you're familiar with what that's like. We prayed. Remember, I had the chance to preach at a local church here on Sunday night. That's when they let the youth pastor preach back in the day with Sunday nights. You had 14 blue hairs in the crowd. That's all you had. So I preached to the 14 and my parents at the time. And Ashley was there in strong support. Afterwards, we went to El Chico. My dad was driving a little uh, red Highlander, and we're sitting in the back seat. My dad used to frustrate me so much because his answer to everything was prayer, way before strategy. I don't know if his years of ministry taught him that. He just wanted to pray. Before we go in and eat, can we just pray? Uh, My default is always food over prayer. So I I guess, Dad. Kind of had a team huddle. We put our hands there in the middle. I thought it was so cheesy. He began to pray. The Spirit of God filled that little car. In a way that I've not seen it very often. God told me in my spirit that He had a plan, He was going to work this out just to trust. Man, I learned a valuable lesson that I forget all the time that God can do more in a moment, supernaturally, than we can do in a lifetime of effort. This is what we're missing right here, church. Just default to our own winsomeness and wisdom and strategy and whiteboards, budget meetings. But we're not praying. We haven't seen the baptismal water stirred in probably six months. It's because we're not praying. Actually, eventually we moved to Dallas. She got pregnant with Claire. She was having some medical complications. We thought we were possibly losing Claire. No time for strategy at that moment. We just hit our knees in the middle of the kitchen and just cried out to God. 
Because when you lose every little crutch and all you have is him, you realize that he really is all that you need. But in contrast, if you have everything that you need but prayer, you have nothing. We take prayer out of this scenario and they've got good doctrine and the apostles teaching and they've got good fellowship with one another. They're, they're participating in communion and they've got good worship, but they've forgotten prayer. Then the church doesn't do anything like it was supposed to do. And I think that's where we're at. If I can speak from my heart to us. We've been hosting a little prayer hour on Tuesdays at noon and I'm not trying to hate on you because most of you are at work and you can't come. We've had probably four people show up in about six weeks. I think sometimes it's just Weston and Lindsay. <laughs> like, it's a couple in Ashley, I think. It was one week that we were, the rest of us were gone. And I really believe it's because we, we just don't care anymore. We just don't believe in prayer. Some people have texted us, hey, I can't leave work, but I'd like to take my lunch hour and pray with you. And that's very encouraging to me. You'd be a people of prayer. Church, we have everything but prayer, which means we have nothing. Or at least prayer at best is pushed to the far margins of our lives. James 5 says the prayer of the righteous man has incredible power, great power. I want us to pray. And we are going to have communion. During the month of Lent, we're doing silent communion. We're going to put some prayer prompts on the screen. And I want you to take some time just where you're at and pray. When you're ready, I want you to come take communion. If you're not a believer in here, my appeal to you is to turn to Jesus. Maybe you've been playing religious games a long time and you're on the outside looking in. You have no idea what I'm talking about. But you hear the Holy Spirit of God this morning. He's calling you just like he calls us all. He's saying, just come. Don't bring a resume. Don't bring anything that you've done. All you need is nothing. Just come. I'm going to be at the back if you'd like to pray with me. We'll have some other pastors standing around that would love to pray with you if you would like to pray. When you came in, everybody received a little connection guide. On that is a little, how can we pray for you? And I'd like you to take a step of faith this morning and put something on that card. Now, you don't have to turn it into us, but I'd love for you to. We'd love to pray for you at staff meeting this week. My Uncle Chip used to use popsicle sticks. He did a lot of ministry with kids. We would write little popsicle, popsicle sticks. We'd write our prayers. Some of you were part of that ministry. You remember riding on hundreds of popsicle sticks, bringing them up to an altar and crying over them, literally, God, if you don't do something for my dad who's lost or my sister or brother, so I, I didn't bring popsicle sticks, but you do have a little piece of paper in your hand. I'd like you to take a step of faith and put something on there. Something you're really burdened about that you'd like to see God move. Maybe the only thing that you can put on there is your apathetic heart because you really just don't know what to pray for. You just, you just don't care. So let's spend some time in prayer. After a little bit, communion, the band's going to lead us in another song or two. However God leads, let me pray for us. God, we are Lord, we need you. A lot of us don't know that we need you. We think I, we got our stuff together. that we are poor and blind, naked. We have nothing. We need you. So God, I pray that you break through hard hearts. 
Lord, the calluses have grown thick on a lot of our hearts because we've ignored the prompting of your spirit, because we've lived for ourselves, because we've made decisions of disobedience for so long. And your kindness this morning is leading us to repentance. Not your wrath, not because we're scared. Your kindness is what leads us to repentance. That you're the eager father in Luke 15 that's waiting for the prodigal to come home. And before we can get any excuse even out of our mouth, you embrace us and put your robe on us and your ring on us and identify and you say, I'm so glad my son or daughter has come home. Lord, can we see that happen today? People coming home. A move in our hearts, if there's any among us who aren't part of your family, would they take the step of faith today? Would you give them courage, the, the nudge, just to take a step? Or some of us, we got lost family members, and we have prayed for them for so long, and we think it's a lost cause. Or remind us that there's no such thing as a lost cause when it comes to the kingdom of God. We're going to decide once again to keep praying. But others is we've got this besetting sin. It's this thing that keeps stealing our joy, causing us to stumble. And we pray for deliverance of those things. We lay them at your feet. We ask for incredible help and power to overcome. Lord, and all the other things that are burdens in our heart, Lord, you hear us when we cry out to you. <clears throat> So, Father, we're going to pray. As we take communion in a minute, Christ, I pray that you'd be with us in a very special way. Holy Spirit, that you'd illuminate the face of Christ, that we would see him. Our lives would be changed again and again. And then we're going to sing with sincere, glad, generous hearts. for all that you are for us. It's in your name we pray, amen. You come when you're ready. Communion servers will be here. Take as much time as you need to pray.